you're never too old for sex. And it's never too late to regain sexual health. Talking with people about how to have a great retirement. This is the Rock Your Retirement Show. We don't talk about money, but we talk about almost everything else you need to rock your retirement. Now, here's your host, Kathy Klein. Welcome to the Rock Your Retirement Show. This is Kathy, and I wanted to let you know that today we're going to be talking about some sensitive subjects that you might not want little ones to hear. In fact, you probably won't want little ones to hear. So please either put on your headsets or listen to the show when you're by yourself or with your uh, adult loved ones. Today we have Mrs. Sue Goldstein on the show, and she has so many letters and after her name, I cannot say them all, and we'll let her tell you about her credentials. But basically, she educates people on sex, sexual dysfunction, sexual functionality, you know, basically everything that has to do with sexual medicine. She's the program coordinator for San Diego Sexual Medicine, good name, and she's also recently co-authored a book called When Sex Isn't Good. So we'll talk to her about that as well. So Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kathy. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. This is definitely something that is interesting to me and also my listener. So tell me, you've been doing this for a little, you know, a while, right? I've been doing this for 10 years, but my husband's worked in this field all of his life. So I've always been peripherally involved. And I tell people I supported my husband in his dream and one day I woke up it was and realized it was my dream as well. <laughs> so in 2007, we moved to San Diego from Boston, opened up San Diego Sexual Medicine, and boom, I went from being a part-time worker to being full-time and being totally integrated in patient care, uh, clinical research, patient education, and loving every minute of it. <laughs> that is awesome. Now, before we get into what you do, I just have to ask, what was it like being married to somebody whose job is to deal with sex? I mean, was that a little weird or was it just natural to you? <laughs> well, I, I the question is, did he go into the field of sex because he loves sex or does he love sex because he's in the field of sexuality? But <laughs> It wasn't weird because we've always had a very comfortable, open relationship, and so I've always understood what was going on. But when I talk to people in the community and I say, you think your husbands think about sex a lot? Think about mine. <laughs> yeah, it's his job to think about sex, right? It is, for men and women. He treat, he, he treats both men and women in the office. But we, we have a very unique practice because under one roof, uh, he's the clinician with nurse practitioner support. We have a sex therapist here. We have a physical therapist. And then I'm the head of the whole research department. But all of us are very involved in trying to educate both the patients and the community and professionals working in our field. So what would you say the, the top thing is that you educate people on? The, the, the number one thing that you would want people to know about sex or sexual dysfunction. If you could only leave our listener with one thing today, what would it be? Well, Kathy, I think it would be that you're never too old for sex. 
and it's never too late to regain sexual health. If you've been to your clinician and he said, oh, you know, you're, you're past childbearing years, Mrs. Smith, uh, you're postmenopausal, what does it matter if sex hurts? Just you're done. Well, you don't have to accept that. Or Mr. Smith, you know, you're, you're having trouble getting erections. Your wife's not interested anyway. Why bother? There's no such thing. If you're not interested in having sex, that's your decision. But if you want to have a sexual relationship, we can help you or your physician can help you. You're never too old to be sexually healthy and enjoy the intimacy that comes with being sexually active. Do doctors still say that? That people are too old they to have do. sex? I, I, that's just amazing to me that that would come out of somebody's mouth. <laughs> Or, or, you know, if for, for a woman, for instance, who's having difficulty uh, maintaining interest in sex but wants to want sex, the story is, go away for the weekend with your husband, have a glass of wine. And my response is, don't you think she's already tried that? If she's shown up at your doorstep, it's because she needs medical help. Somebody asked us recently, what was the oldest man that we've treated for erectile dysfunction? And I will tell you, and uh, I think he was 91, and the, my li- the listener was in shock. Somebody that old would want to have sex, and it's like, why not? Their brain is still working. If their body isn't working as well as it was before, we can help them you know, that work. But there's no limit to being sexually active. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should go out and have sex with everybody on the street. Uh, we certainly believe in practicing safe sex and, and God willing, you have a partner still and you know, that you can be intimate with. That's wonderful. But nobody should tell you that you should accept where you are in terms of your sexual health. And that's one way that especially married people stay married, right? Is is by having sex. Exactly. You'll find that if you're sexually active, the little things, he dropped the socks on the floor, she didn't, didn't make your favorite meal, all those things tend to drop away because we know from research that having sexual intercourse actually decreases your stress level. It changes the biochemistry in your body. And when, when you think about how many couples are divorced, I'm going to be very blunt. I truly believe that the man with the young woman on his arm is not looking for a trophy wife. He's looking for a lubricated vagina. So what do you do as you get older? So obviously I'm a woman. I'm not a man, so I can't speak from their, <laughs> their, their point of view. But as you get older, things change. So tell us what happens on a medical level so that our younger listener can understand and our older listener is probably already going to know this, but, but let us know what happens. That's really a great topic, Kathy, because people don't, women in particular, don't talk about this. As we're going towards menopause, that's your younger listener, your hormones are already changing. When you go through menopause, when you no longer have menses for 12 months, that's the definition of menopause, that is a permanent situation. Your hormones have decreased, and without hormone support, certain tissues in your body do not remain healthy. So without the estrogens, your vagina will literally start drying up a little bit, the thickness gets thinner so that when you have intercourse or or use a a vibrator, 
the tissues can actually tear and bleed, but it, they, they start by being a little dry, a little itchy, and it only goes you know, worse from there. The external genitalia are testosterone or androgen dependent, and so they also can become painful. But you can use hormones that are bioidentical. So this is not like the scary stuff everybody heard from the Women's Health Initiative back in 2002. These are bioidentical hormones. So they're FDA approved. They are the same chemical structures which your body naturally has. And just like as you're aging, you don't accept heart disease. You take medication to keep your blood vessels healthy. You don't accept diabetes. You take medication to keep yourself healthy. You can take a very low dose of, of hormones to keep your body back, you know, back where it was when it was younger and keep it healthy. So that's a pain issue. For women who lose interest, we now have uh, medications that can, that can treat that. You know, that while it's wonderful to try to do everything organically, the fact is that to try to consume foods that are going to treat all these issues, you would spend the entire day eating, uh, you know, foods that you, that couldn't possibly do it. So the, the fact is that we can keep your body healthy by using bioidentical hormones. For those women who don't want to use hormones, we have new treatments. One, it's called a CO2 fractionated laser, which is a very fancy word for machine that has a probe that goes into your vagina and it sends out little tiny burns almost. And they're, they're, it's called controlled wounds. They're so tiny, you could not see them. You could only see them through a microscope. So you're not actually going to bleed. And ladies, it does not hurt at all. You literally don't feel it going on. But when those wounds heal, they heal with healthy tissue and that makes your vagina healthy. Now, on the flip side for men, the men, the problem that men have is they, their, their testosterone starts to drop. So they also need to have, have hormones to keep them healthy. And they get erectile dysfunction. And we have, I mean, everyone's heard of Viagra. We have several different medications that you can take orally. When that stops working as you age, you can actually do an injection of medication right into your penis. And when that stops working, we can put an implant in. My husband likes to say, if you have a penis, I can give you an erection. So even if someone has, let's say they have cancer and they're mm-hmm. taking a, a hormone blocking drug that, that makes it impossible for them to have an erection, you're saying that somebody like that could get a penile implant and still have intercourse? Yes, but you don't even have to go to the implant. We have many post-prostatectomy patients who use injection therapy. It's medication that they inject right into the penis because what happens is, is you need the blood vessels to dilate, to get larger, so the blood will come in and, that, and then the blood vessels press, are pressed against and that traps the blood in there. So when you take an oral medication, it opens up those blood vessels. Mm-hmm. But when you've had, say, a, say, prostate surgery, many of the nerves there have been damaged. And so that won't work anymore. But if you do the injection, you're, in a sense, bypassing all of that. And you're putting the medicine right into the penis that will allow that dilation of the blood vessels there and allow the erection. Now, I am hearing my male listener cringe right now. So he's going, oh my gosh, I don't want to do that. But you know what? How many people do you know that inject themselves for diabetes two, three times a day? How many people do you know that inject themselves once a week with testosterone? It's a diabetic needle. It's a tiny, tiny needle. And yes, it sounds really scary, 
But if that's the only way to get an erection, I mean, you can get an implant, but once you have an implant in, we can't go back to anything else. So typically we recommend using the injections for a while. When they become unpalatable, or when they no longer work, then we go to the, the implant. I mean, we put implants in, in 21-year-olds because they, they have the physiology that there's nothing else we can do. And, the, and implants are great because they're extremely reliable. But the people you're now hearing cringing when we're talking in implants are their partners. Now, why is that? Because if he's getting an implant, chances are He's 60, 65, and he hasn't had sex in seven or eight years. He finally has gotten to the point he's having the implant. If he hasn't had sex in seven or eight years, neither is she. And during that time, her vagina has gone from being a little bit dry to being very dry and atrophic. So we need to remember that there's a partner. Now, it may be a same-sex partner. I'm not, trying to, I'm not saying that we're only talking about heterosexual sex. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about a male getting an implant and a female having gone through menopause during this time and they haven't attempted sex for a while, she's probably going to be very sore. So uh, one of the mistakes that many of our implanters do is they don't discuss the partner issue. They never say to him, well, tell me about your partner. Um, When's the last time she's had sex? And maybe we should talk to her about at minimum making sure there's plenty of lubrication to help, or let's give her a good examination and see where she is if her vagina is starting to to get genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which is the fancy word for what happens to our vaginas as we age. So is that kind of like, you know, I've heard that if you don't have sex for a while, you go back to being a virgin? <laughs> is that kind of what we're talking about here? Well, a little I, I don't grain think of truth? we're talking about... We're not talking about going back to being a virgin. That's very different because the virgin vagina is very stretchable because it hasn't had its babies yet. Uh, you know, it's very pliable. It's not going to tear and it's not going to bleed, but it's going, it's going to be tight. This is tight for a different reason. Okay, I shouldn't joke about it. <laughs> yes, I no, should not joke. No, but I don't, it's fine. I'm smiling. You put a smile on my face, Gabby. That's, that's, that's cute. Nothing brings you back to virginity, but maybe surgery, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, we just we just have to remember that unless you're masturbating, and there's nothing wrong with masturbation, but unless you're masturbating, it takes two to have sexual intercourse. So we always need to think in terms of the partner, what his or her likes are, you know, bring them into the room. When we see new patients, we recommend that if their partner is available, please have the partner come because we want to educate both members of the couple. That's and many times we treat one and six months later, we wind up treating the other. Okay. So let's go back to the situation where somebody has cancer. They're, they're taking a hormone blocker to prevent the cancer from coming back, you know, like Lupron or something. Are we talking a man or a woman? A man, a man, like prostate cancer. So they can't have Mm -hmm. sex because of the hormone blocker. No, they can't get an erection easily because of the hormone blocker. That's not the same thing as, as they can't have sex. Thank you for correcting me. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, that you're right. You're absolutely right. So would taking any of these injections be dangerous for that person? Does it increase their testosterone or is it simply making something hard? I mean, I, I don't know the logistics. Yeah, it's a pharmacologic erection. It's simply making something hard. It will not do anything to the cancer and it doesn't have anything to do with testosterone. And just so you know, 
all of this business of testosterone causing prostate cancer are based on a single study in the 1950s out of Chicago where he had an N of two. There was two people. And of the two, one of them got cancer after being on testosterone. We now believe that there are different kinds of prostate cancers, one that's hormonally mediated and one that's not. And the one that's not is a very, very virulent cancer. That's the one that kills. The testosterone companies will be performing a research study next year looking at giving men testosterone for long-term and seeing if there's an increased risk of cardiovascular events and prostate cancer. They're actually doing the study. The FDA has asked them to do that. It will be starting in early 2018. Wow, that is so interesting. I mean, I know so many people that have had prostate cancer. And that is, I mean, this could change the way it's treated, for sure. Well, before you even get to the, the treatment, the other thing that now we've learned is that prostate biopsies are not very accurate. And there were a lot of prostate surgeries done unnecessarily. Mm. And the new thing now is to do an MRI, put the man in an MRI. The MRI will show exactly where the tumor is, and then you do a pro, an MRI-guided um, biopsy sample. And instead of taking, you know, 30 samples, you just take a few samples guided by the MRI so it's going exactly into where that tumor is. And then you can see, is that tumor cancerous or is it benign? Is it something we need to treat surgically or is it something we can just do watchful waiting? And watchful waiting is considered a therapy for prostate cancer, even though you're not doing anything actively, but you're cognizant and you're taking, taking care of it. So when we see patients coming in here and they say, um, they think I might have prostate cancer, the first thing we say to them is, okay, here are your options. Go get the MRI, get, the, get it, you know, a guided, an MRI guided biopsy, and then you'll know for real what it is or take your chances. Because even though we have quote unquote nerve sparing surgery. The fact is it's nerve sparing of the nerves we can see, but we can't see most of the nerves. And so it's not truly nerve sparing, even though it's called that. And that's why you get erectile dysfunction because those nerves are caught. And there's a lot of nerves, you know, that's... Yes, there are a lot of nerves. You can't see them with the naked eye. (laughs) That's right. Especially in our genital areas, you know, that's what makes sex pleasurable, right? Are all these nerves that we have. Exactly. I mean, you hear about the G-spot in women. Well, it's the G-spot isn't actually an anatomical spot. The G-spot is actually the, the area of the prostate in the woman. Really? I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I'm learning so much from this. This is really, I'm so glad I had you on the show. <laughs> Forget the listener. I'm just asking you for myself. <laughs> Are we having fun yet? Oh, I'm loving this. Are you kidding? I'm learning so much. So we sort of veered off sex and went into prostate cancer, which is, which is good because they, as you get older, they're sort of interconnected. Um, Mm -hmm. so let's say that it's been a while since man and a woman have had sex for whatever reason. They're able to correct some of the issues. What works better? The drugs that you're talking about for women? Let's go back to the woman area or that CO2 fractional laser. So is that sort of a, you don't want, you only do it if you don't want hormones or does it actually work better? Um, I can't say that it works better, but there's nothing wrong with doing both of them. You know, it's really up to the individual. Now, when it comes to hormones, 
you have two different issues going on. You have local, which would be the hormones that you, when you actually put estradiol into your vagina, and then we put a compounded estrogen testosterone on the, the vestibule, which is the area outside, the area between your labia majora, labia minora, and over your clitoris. And then the systemic estradiol, which goes into your bloodstream throughout the body. And they're two separate things. And you can actually take local and systemic together if you choose to use a fem ring, which is sort of like an old-fashioned diaphragm with nothing in the middle. And, and that would give systemic estradiol as well as local. Uh, or you can just choose to do the local. So for a lot of women who are afraid of the idea of hormones, we'll just use the local because it doesn't go into their bloodstream and doesn't affect breast cancer. Even though the, the risk of breast cancer is virtually not, nil, null, virtually nothing. So I went through menopause and I was taking, before I was on menopause, I was taking birth control to sort of um, control my my period, because it was very sporadic. I mean, it would... Can I respond to that? Sure. Ooh, do you have any idea what birth control does to your body? Yeah, they finally took me off of it. Actually, I was off of it. Okay, I'm trying to remember what happened. I was on it, and then when I stopped having my periods, I went off of it on my own. And the doctor kept telling me that I should go back on it for bone health. And then finally, when I started having hot flashes, and it was pretty, pretty bad. My hot flashes were really bad. I would be sweating one minute and I'd be freezing the next at night. It was, it was really awful. My poor husband, we got married. I was the young honey and my husband's quite a bit older than me. And then he had to go through my menopause. I felt so bad for him. If you had been on hormones, you wouldn't have had the hot flashes and you wouldn't worry about your bone density. Right. So now they have me on a, they have me on the two hormones. I don't know that they're bioidentical, but yeah, I have a patch and then I take a progesterone pill at night. Okay. That's fine. Your patch will be bioidentical and the progesterone you have, it's the little pink one, right? Yeah, I have to do the football-shaped one because those round ones, I, I literally could die. if I, I don't know why they make those round ones. Um, <laughs> they get stuck in my throat. I mean, really. I mean, finally, it's funny because my pharmacy would not guarantee that I would get the football-shaped ones. And I said, I'm, I'm literally going to die <laughs> on one of these. <laughs> so I have to go to a different pharmacy to pick up those particular pills. Because my pharmacy finally, uh, you know, I can't do mail order because they can't guarantee I get the football-shaped ones. Yeah, I just get mine at the, at the local chain store and I, and I get the football ones. Yeah, I don't know. Like, why would they make round ones? Are they trying to kill all of us or what's the deal? I mean, they're perfectly shaped to kill us. It's called generic. So the football ones aren't generic? I thought they were both generic. No, I think the football ones are the name brand. I believe those are Prometrium. I know that I don't choke on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're kind of spongy gel on the outside. They just slip right down. They've, I use those too. Yeah. So let, so let me tell you what my husband and I do for health, for sexual health. Please. And, and, and that might be sort of a good example. So my husband is easy. He's been taking testosterone for about 15 years now. He is almost 67 years old. So as he got older, he started using a little bit of testosterone. And the reason why you don't want to use it when you're young is because your, your body men's body has a feedback system. It's the gonads say, oh, I've got plenty of testosterone. I don't have to work. And okay. then they start failing as you get older. That's the word for it. They literally start failing. They make less testosterone. So now we make testosterone. And the gonad said, oh, 
I've got plenty of testosterone. I don't have to make any more. So if you give testosterone to a 35-year-old, you get what we call raisin nuts. Oh. The gonads will re- literally shrivel up. Well, when you're 67, I mean, my husband doesn't look like he's shriveling nuts, but you know, they, they, they don't work as much because you're giving it exogenous testosterone. You're putting testosterone on, you know, on your chest in an injection, in a pellet, however you do it. But you're, gi- you're giving yourself enough testosterone that the gonads don't really need to, don't feel they need to make very much. Okay. So that's all he does, plus low-dose um, aspirin and low-dose uh, Lipitor, just prophylactically for help. And he's, not, and he's not worried that taking the testosterone is going to lead to cancer because he's aware of these studies and the fact that that original study about testosterone and cancer was only done with two individuals. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And he also knows that by taking this, it's probably going to keep his brain working better, his muscle mass up, his bone density, all of those things, cognition, all of those things are testosterone dependent or things that happen in the cascade as testosterone breaks down further. Okay. So now me, I'm more complicated. I'm a woman. We're supposed. The idea that women are more complicated sexually is bogus because complicated sexual problems are complicated in men or women and simple sexual problems are simple in men or women. So I'm not saying that. But in terms of treatment, it's more complicated because for me, I need my testosterone and my estrogen and, as you say, the progesterone. So for me, I wear a fem ring. I don't want to have to muss and fuss. So every three months I change it. It gives me estradiol throughout my system. It gives me estradiol in my vagina. Then I use the topical compounded estrogen testosterone every day on my external genitalia that we talked about before. And then I take my progesterone a couple of times a week. Because, and it used to be that it said if you had a uterus, you need progesterone. But the fact is that we know that progesterone does things in your brain. And for a woman, even if you don't have a uterus, you still take progesterone. And then I take low-dose aspirin and low-dose Lipitor. And I'm 67 years old, and most people think I'm in my early 50s. Now, a lot of that is genetics. I'm lucky enough to have been born always looking younger than my age. But because I have been on testosterone um, for 15 years and estradiol for 13 years, it's allowed me. I don't have osteoporosis. Um, I don't. I, I. I. My brain. Well, other than when I'm fumbling for words right now, my brain works pretty well. And I know that at one point I was starting to lose words. And I realized it was because I hadn't had testosterone. Oh, I forgot to say I have systemic testosterone. I have a pellet inserted in my buttocks, and it sounds scary, but they basically make like a little nick, drop a pellet in, put a stereostrip over, done, and I'm good for about five and a half months with testosterone. When my testosterone runs low, I will find that I'm fumbling for words. I do that all the time. Maybe I need one of these pellets. And they tell you, well, you're aging. You've got CRS, right? Can't remember. <laughs> That's right. CRS can't remember stuff. <laughs> exactly. And we blame all of that on aging, but it's actually not aging per se. It's the drop in testosterone that men and women both get as we age. Oh, my goodness. I, you know, you are enlightening me. So you really, you're not, mm-hmm. you're not just a sexual... Um, clinic. You're an you're a anti-aging clinic. Well, but we don't like to be identified that way because anti-aging people tend to promote, you have to buy, you know, vitamin A, B, C, D, e, you know, you have to buy all our products. We're going to keep you young. We don't say we're going to keep you young. 
we say we're going to keep you healthy and sexually active as long as you, you want to be. The, it, philosophically, it's something different. Okay. That makes total sense. Um, who was that actress in the 80s that used to do the Thigh Master? What was her name? Um, oh, Suzanne Summers, and she has all of this. That's who you're talking about, right? Yeah. Wasn't she one of the first people to promote bioidentical hormones? No, she was promoting compounded bioidentical hormones. Okay, so what's the difference? She was promo- well, we like to use FDA approved. So, so okay, so after, the Food and Drug Administration is very, very firm about making sure that drugs have in them exactly what the bottle says is in them. They go in and they inspect manufacturing places, even when they're in China or in India, and they're very careful with what we put in our bodies. The the pharmacies that make drugs for us that are compounded, so they put in some of this and some of that, are inspected once a year to make sure that they're clean. But nobody can guarantee what it is that they put into the drug. So because of Suzanne Summers' books, people thought that in order to be bioidentical, it had to be compounded. Bioidentical means that the chemical structure of it is the same as the chemical structure of what is in your body. So we would much prefer using an FDA-approved product because we know what's in the drug is what's actually in the drug than using something compounded. The only thing we tend to use compounded is when we want the estrogen testosterone um, cream or when we have somebody who's allergic to something that's in an FDA-approved product. Suzanne Somers was promoting much higher level hormones than you should be. I don't know how safe what she promoted, you know, was. Uh, she did have breast cancer, and whether that was because she used high doses, I don't know. One of the things about using bioidenticals is that you can measure the hormone level. I mean, we would give a woman her, her estradiol and her testosterone, and three months later we would do bloods to see where she was to make sure we maintained it in a, in a healthy level, a normal level, not something that's supraphysiologic, which is a fancy word for too high for your body. So when people say, well, you know, aren't you worried about getting a low voice and a beard with testosterone? I go, you know, I was the first soprano when I started testosterone at 52, and I'm still a first soprano. <laughs> as long as I'm keeping the testosterone levels at my age now, the same levels that they were when I was 20 and 30 and 40, why would I think I'm, I was going to, you know, become a man in any way, shape, or form? When we have women who are becoming trans, who are transgender becoming men, that's when we give them male doses of testosterone. We're giving one tenth of a dose that goes to a man to a woman. Okay, so I'm already growing hair on my chin. And that kind of runs in my family. That's a menopausal thing. That has nothing to do with testosterone. That's oh. a menopausal thing. Okay. So if I took testosterone, I'm not going to get a full beard. <laughs> no, you'll still have the, the hairs that you are growing may become a little coarser, but no, you're not going to get a full, full beard. And, but when you, I, I also want you to think in medicine, we always say risk benefit, the risk benefit ratio. So what do you risk taking testosterone? Uh, if you had acne as a teen, it may bring out the acne again. If you didn't, then it shouldn't. I can't guarantee. But on the flip side, using the testosterone improves mood, includes cognition, improves muscle mass, improves bone density, improves sexual function. 
So, you know, we can do, for the acne, you can put on medication, although you don't want to do spironolactone because that's terrible for you sexually. It works by turning off the testosterone. Mm -hmm. And for the hair growth, well, you know, there's electrolysis, there's laser removal, there's a razor, you know. So you just, each person as an individual has to decide which thing is more important to them. And for some people, having no acne is more important. And for some people, being sexually functional and keeping their body healthy and their brains going is more important. And it's an individual decision. But that's a decision between a person and their healthcare provider. It's a discussion that, that should take place. You know, and each person has a right to make their own decision. You know, you're opening my eyes to so much. One thing that I wanted to ask so we're talking about bioidentical hormones that you're uh, that you use to help people with their sexual dysfunction, but I imagine it helps in other ways. Does it, for example, help women lose weight? Well, the hormones help only in that they give you more energy. Testosterone will give you more energy, so that you'll be more willing to go into the gym. You may not actually see a lot of weight loss because you may see fat loss and conversion to muscle, which is more. But what's interesting is we have a new medication that came out about a year and a half ago for women with HSDD. That's hypoactive sexual desire disorder. What that means is you have less desire, less sexual interest than you used to have, and it bugs you. Very simple. It may mean you have no interest and you roll over in bed at night and let your husband go to sleep and, you know, you don't want him to even touch you. Or it may just be that, you know, you're willing to have sex with him, but you used to get turned on and want, and, and want to start things. And now you're just willing to have sex, but you're lying there thinking, oh, shoot, I forgot to take the wash and put it in the dryer. I better remember to do that. <laughs> or, oh, I have, to, I have to remember to, you know, buy, buy milk for breakfast. You know, and all of those are, are different spectrum of HSDD, but there's a brand new medication that was, well, it's not brand new now, it's a year and a half, sorry, um, that was approved by the FDA for premenopausal women, but it doesn't mean you can't use it off-label. Just like the testosterone for women is off-label, that means there's no, there's no approval for its use in women, but a doctor can always write it and say, you're doing it. Well, this new drug, it's the, the generic name is Flibanserin, the chemical name is Flibanserin, and the trade name is Addy, A-D-D-Y-I, like add to your interest, um, Addy. And it is available. It's uh, not inexpensive, and if you're postmenopausal, there's going to be no insurance coverage for it. I'm just giving you a fair warning. However, I can't even remember where we were going with this. So this this drug is designed for for increasing interest, but women experience weight loss on it. So it's a double whammy. You know, what's the side effect? Well, you lose some weight. I can live with that. It also makes you a little sleepy, so you take it at, at bedtime. Again, who can't you? Who doesn't want a drug that's going to help them sleep better? I've been on this for a year and a half. It's remarkable because not only does it improve your desire, it also improves your arousal and your orgasm. So I'm going to be very blunt. My body is 67 years old. I'm married 43 years to the same man, and my body responds like a 25-year-old when we have sex. Wow. Now, the negative is because it's such an incredible physical response since I've been on this medication that I need, I, I need a little time for my body to recover. So my husband goes, can we have sex tonight? Oh, we had sex yesterday. He knows I, I can't have sex two days in a row. And I share my experience because I think it helps other people understand uh, they, this, 
it can be so intense that my muscles are tired and need a day off. That's why you're losing weight, or that's why you lose weight on that, because you're you're having sex. It's no, exercise. It, it actually, because it's a central mechanism. It works on your brain, and so part of what it works on your brain is that it's sort of um, the, the satiety for 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 appetite. It's you know it just decreases decreases the, the the need for food. But certainly, if you're sexually satisfied, it you know it changes a lot of parameters too. It changes relationships. You're um, there's more fun in relationships. People for whom there were no reports of relationship issues, including myself, find changes in the relationship because it's now so more playful. And it's not even necessarily sexually playful, but there's a more of an ease in a relationship that would never that never felt a strain before. It's hard to describe, but I had done a, I did some research. I presented at the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health that when we talked to these women when they had HSCD, many of the descriptors were the same as women with breast cancer. And I'm not making light of breast cancer. It's a serious, serious disease. But they described themselves as less than a woman, not feeling whole, uh, beige, you know, all, a lot of these words. And when they went back on this drug, all of those descriptors went away. But in addition, they talk about you know, improved self-esteem. And, and not just because they're having sex, but it reboots your brain to where it was when you were young and healthy. You know, they talk about the, the, play, the, the playfulness in the relationship, feeling whole, feeling more connected to their partners, suddenly wanting to you know, sexting with their partners, things that they had never done before for fun. And it's just, it's just interesting to see that. So we're, you know, for the men, we know we can guarantee them an implant this medication is really helping women. It doesn't work for everyone, but it seems to work in somewhere between 50 and 60% of the women. And if we look at all of our drugs, you know, the, the, the PD-5s, the Viagras in that class, those drugs all seem to work in about 60% of people. Wow, the way they advertise it, it would seem like it's 100%. Well, if you think about how many people there are in the world, Kathy, if it works in 60% of the people, that's a lot. That's one heck of a lot of people. <laughs> no, it's a ton. No, I wasn't, I mean, I was like, but but the advertisements make it sound like it's 100%, but 60, 50, 60%, that's a lot. And I had no idea yeah. about, how do you pronounce it? Flibacerin? Is that how it's pronounced? Flibacerin. Flibacerin. Interesting. Yeah. So are there any side effects that people should know about? Uh, the side effects of that are very similar to the side effects of other central acting drugs like uh, Buspirone and, and uh, things like that. So it's uh, sleepiness. So it's taken at bedtime. Uh, sometimes a little bit of nausea, uh, dizziness. Uh, again, most of which are transient. They go away after a short time. And if, by taking it at bed, you basically alleviate most of these um, symptoms. And providers, because it's such a new drug, providers sometimes don't know about it or they say, well, I'm really scared about this. Oh, the other thing is, sorry, you're not supposed to take this with alcohol. Now, the FDA had a brilliant reason for this. They didn't want to pass this drug, but they knew they had no standings to not pass it. So they made the company do what's called an alcohol challenge. Okay. It, people were allowed to have a light breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning. At 9 o'clock, they had to drink somewhere between a half a bottle and a bottle of wine with the pill. <laughs> up one person had to drink all that? <laughs> exactly. Um, and they tried to get all women because this is a drug for w- women, and everybody vomited but two. So they had two women in the trial, and the rest of the people were men. 
and they and some of them passed out. Well, like, duh. I couldn't do that with. <laughs> Nobody could. <laughs> Come on. So okay. That's why they put a box warning on it saying that you know you can't have it with alcohol. If you look at the clinical trials, and there are some eleven thousand data, uh, eleven thousand visits from clinical trials. 11,000. Viagra passed with 700. This is 11,000. And the women were social drinkers. And because they didn't collect exactly how many drinks people had, they couldn't use that for the alcohol. But we know social drinkers say that we know 60% of people were social drinkers and social drinkers are two to three drinks per week. So none of them reported any interaction between alcohol and the drug. So recently, the company did a new alcohol challenge. I've seen the results. I am not at liberty to share them because they haven't been published yet. But they certainly will ex- allow a woman to make the decision. What we say, we like to say is this is the information. It's, on, it's the alcohol challenge is why this warning is there. The, you know, the, during the regular clinical trials, it wasn't an issue. You're an adult. You can make a decision of what you do. You know, they, each patient has to sign off saying, I will not drink. But that doesn't mean that what you do in your own house, what decisions you make on your own. They're not going to have the drink police following you around. Right. So what, what I t- I'm often brought in as a patient advocate because not being a prescriber, I can have that conversation. And being someone who's been on Flabanserin for a year and a half, I can have that conversation. And I say to them, <laughs> if you're planning to binge drink, do not take your pill that night. Just skip it. Okay. But if you're having a glass of din- you know, wine with dinner, two glasses, that's totally fine. And when you go to bed, I mean, you're taking your pill when you're going to bed. You're not walking around anyway. So it's, it's not an issue. But officially, the word is no alcohol, and that okay. scares people. So I want to ask you one last question. I can't believe we completely blew past the break. You are so interesting. And I'm gonna, I, I am going to ask you to come back on the show at a later date. But one more question, and that is with this drug, Addie, I think you said was the um, brand name. How long did it take before you started noticing a difference? That's a great question. It's very individual. For me, it took about three weeks. The FDA randomly pulled eight weeks or two months out and said, if you haven't seen effects at the end of two months, then stop it. With our patients, we tell them, you know what, give it to three months. Some people report as early as six days. Uh, the fact is that it's not that, you know, today I have no desire, tomorrow I do have desire. It's such an incremental change that it's maybe on board working before you even are cognizant that it's working. And the changes, for me, the changes continued until about six months. It finally plateaued at six months because there were different pieces of the puzzle that came together. You know, the suddenly realized I was thinking about having sex tonight kind of thing takes place at a different time from when it's, oh, you know what? I'm horny. Can I say that word on on the air? (laughs) Yes, you can. Uh, You know, I I hope my husband's awake tonight and I would, you know, dinner, don't have that glass of wine, dear, Uh, you know. (laughs) And so the changes happen and then you start realizing the other changes that the relationship feels different and you feel better about yourself. And so it was, you know, it was what for me personally, it went from three weeks to six months, all those changes. But as I said, we've had, had reports as early as at six days recognizing suddenly you're thinking about sex. And for some people, it may take, you know, two and a half months. 
So it's, it's very individual, and we don't have enough information to know whether it has anything to do with how long you've had the dysfunction, how severe it is, any of that. We don't know any of that. Hmm. Well, it sounds like more study is needed. And Sue, so you well, have been... We're doing a study right now. Oh, you Kathy, are. Hmm. Yes, we're doing a study in pre- and post-menopausal women. Maybe I should sign up. Do you, do you need post? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we're also doing a study with the Mona Le- with the with the with the fractionated CO two fractionated laser for women, and we're doing lots of studies for men. So some so so let's do this again sometime, and let me talk about some of the clinical research we're doing. Oh, absolutely! You you are so interesting and so amazing. I'm so glad that you came on the show. So, how can somebody contact you? Our office number is six one nine two six five eight eight. Six, five. They can reach me that way. They can find out about clinical trials that way. They can find out about becoming a patient that way. And the other thing is we do have an information email line, information at sdsm.info. And we're also on, on the website. We are sandiegosexualmedicine.com. And I'll have links on the show notes. So once again, Sue, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Kathy. It was my pleasure. Thanks. And to the listener, thanks for listening to this episode of Rocky Retirement. Join the conversation. If you have something to say about any drugs you've taken or anything that you would like to talk about, keep it clean. If it's not, I'll delete it. But head on over to the show notes at rockyourretirement.com and leave a comment. Have a conversation. And please tell your friends and family about these episodes. You can change someone's life. And you know, having a good sexual relationship could actually save a marriage. So I hope to see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Thanks for listening to the Rock Your Retirement Show. If you are rocking your retirement or know someone who would make a great guest on our show, please send us an email at podcast at rockyourretirement.com. Oh, wait, I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August... Actually, August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so 
in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show and when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the, the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five-star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com support, and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.